Judges chapter 6. In the first six verses of this chapter, Israel is getting ready to be delivered. And yet as we read these verses, it's going to seem like anything but deliverance. They are miserable. But it reminds us many times, either in our own life or as we see in the life of others, that sometimes we don't know we need deliverance until we get pretty low. We don't know how we need to be saved until we recognize we need a Savior and we're lost and we need to be found. And so the depths that Israel is is suffering in the first six verses is really preparing them for the deliverance that God has for them here in this passage of Scripture. And let's remember as we go through the book of Judges that one of the main themes is that our God is a God who delivers And whatever you and I need delivered from in order to experience God in a greater way, in order to become all that God created us to be, God can and will deliver us from those things. So the chapter opens sort of on a dreary note. Israel's idolatry. Oh, there's a surprise. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. There's something new. No, it's something that they've been doing. It's this cycle that we see throughout the book of Judges. That over and over again, it gets pretty stale, doesn't it? That they keep going back and reverting to the same old lifestyle. In fact, even worse, because back in chapter 1, it told us that every time Israel went back and did evil in the sight of the Lord, it was always a little bit more evil than the previous generation. And we've already seen in the book of Judges that when Israel forsakes God, that God will not allow them to stay comfortable in their sin. No more than God, because He loves us so much, will not allow us to stay comfortable in our sin. So He brings into the picture the Midianites. And we are introduced to, here in these six verses, the Midianites, and we are given the most detailed description of Israel's distress so far in the book of Judges. Dire distress it was. We're going to read that whenever the Israelites would plant their crops, the Midianites would invade and ruin the produce of the land. They would pillage their foodstuffs for themselves. They would allow their livestock to pasture on the rest. They appropriated Israel's sheep, oxen, and donkeys. It it would be the equivalent of stealing a mechanic's tools. And for seven years, they left Israel no sustenance or means of sustenance. Seven years. You are hungry. You are poor. And you are tired. And every year, as sure as death and taxes, the Midianites, like buzzards, would come. You're tired of rushing your family, your livestock, what's left of it, your grain, if you've salvaged any, to the hills where you live this caveman existence till these foreign locusts get bored and move on to impoverish someone else. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you as an Israelite could throw your wheat up into the air and let the wind take it as a free man should? So the Bible says Israel was brought very low on account of Midian and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Let's read it in the first six verses of Judges chapter 6. The Israelites 
did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord turned them over to Midian for seven years. The Midianites overwhelmed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made shelters for themselves in the hills, as well as caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east would attack them. They invaded the land and devoured its crops all the way to Gaza. They left nothing for the Israelites to eat, and they took away the sheep, oxen, and donkeys. When they invaded with their cattle and tents, they were as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted. They came to devour the land. Israel was so severely weakened by Midian that the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And here we see the nation of Israel getting ready for salvation, getting ready to be delivered because they had gotten to the point where they were in such deep distress that they were willing to look up and once again cry out to the Lord. I want to talk for a moment about this word weakened in my translation in verse 6. Israel was so severely weakened or brought low or made vulnerable. It reminds us what sin will do in our lives. Because the reason that they were in this condition wasn't because of the strength of Midian, but actually because of the internal weakness in the nation of Israel. And it reminds us of what can happen in our lives, what can happen in our nation, what can happen to any organization or church when we are weak from within. It's why we have to continue to spiritually grow and mature in our faith and get stronger so that we can be strong, so that we can prevent those outside forces that want to drag us down and defeat and discourage us from even coming into our lives. God wants to make his people a place of strength. And he wants us to operate from a position of strength. And they were not strong because sin had sapped them of their strength. We've got to be careful of that as well. We've always got to be striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, as Peter says, and to develop that spiritual strength. Now, with that said, I want to move to this. Verse 7 through verse 10. It's a main point tonight and one that I want to just spend a little bit of time because it's certainly one that I need to be reminded of. He's talking here about the word of God that instructs us. Because Israel cries out for help. They need a deliverer. And God does something that he does a lot. He does something very strange. In fact, it appears to us as ludicrous. Israel cries out for relief, and look who God sends. He sends a prophet. That would be like us being a stranded motorist along the highway calling for assistance and getting a philosopher rather than a mechanic. That's not going to do us any good. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help because of Midian, he sent a prophet to the Israelites. 
He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up from Egypt and took you out of that place of slavery. I rescued you from Egypt's power and from the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave their land to you. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But you have disobeyed me. First of all, notice some of the words God uses. God says, guys... I took you out of the place of slavery, and now guess what? You're enslaved again. You're enslaved again. It's what happens whenever you and I commit our lives to anyone or anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be enslaved to it. And we're going to come under its power. I'd much rather be serving the Lord and be under His power than anything else in the universe. And so He's saying to them, Are you really free? You, you don't want to follow me, you don't want to listen to my word, and yet you go off and you're now following these idols and, and you're adopting these false religions. Are you really free? And God sends a prophet because Israel needs more than immediate relief. They need to understand why they are suffering what they're suffering and being oppressed. And surely God's way with his people have not changed over the centuries. In fact, the book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if this is the way God dealt with his people in the Old Testament, it's more than likely the way God deals with his people today. So do we not sometimes marvel at what we think are the inappropriate answers that God gives to our urgent need? Like Israel. We may be crying out to the Lord, wanting escape from our circumstances, while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Sometimes we may need understanding more than relief. Sometimes God must give us insight before he dare grant deliverance or rescue. God is not about just putting a band-aid on the symptom of a problem so that it'll just resurface as it's done here in the book of Judges. God wants to get to the very core of the problem and take it out by its root and be done with it once and for all. Understanding God's way of holiness is more important than the absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us a great illustration that popped into my head and one that i still remember i'm still scarred by it is when i was a little kid and i'd go out playing and i'd get a nasty gash or cut and i'd come into my mommy and the tears would just be streaming down my cheeks mommy i need a band-aid i just want a band-aid to make it feel better And my mom goes, I'll make it feel better. And she would reach into the medicine chest. And instead of getting out a Band-Aid, she would get out this alcohol. And and she, Jeff, I got to do this before I put the Band-Aid on. And she would pour that over the wound and it would bubble and it would hurt and it would sting. And it was like, ah, the, the... 
the original injury didn't hurt as much as this hurts. And she would always use it. But Jeff, I've got to get the dirt and it'll get infected before I put the band-aid on. That's exactly what God's doing here. He's trying to clean the wound before he puts the band-aid on. It's the same thing God wants to do in our lives. We may be in a scrape and we're crying out like Israel, God help, get me out of this mess. And God may say, I need you to stay in that mess a little bit longer because I need you to learn something from that. Because God's heart is, I don't want you, Jeff, to make the same mistake again. I want you to, to get out of this some wisdom and instruction so that just like the Israelites, you don't cry out for help. And like some parent, I just come and rescue you from the circumstances of what you got yourself in. You never experience any consequences. You never experience any pain, which is only going to set me up to do it over again somewhere down the line. And God says, no, no, no. God loves us too much to handle the situation that way. So when it, God teaches us, when we allow his word to correct and impart solid wisdom, that is so much more of lasting and eternal importance than him granting instant deliverance. So again, yeah, God does some crazy, strange things. But God has a wonderful purpose for it. And his heart always is to do the very best for his children. And sometimes instant deliverance out of the situation is not the best. One of the things I was reminding my small churches of on Sunday that I teach here is that the word love that's used for God in the Bible describing his love for us is a word that can be defined as seeking the highest good for somebody else. See, that's the kind of love that God has, seeking the highest good the the most benefit that that's the way god loves us not necessarily again to pacify us to always because god's love as i say over and over again to myself is not a pampering love it's a perfecting love god wants to make me more like jesus christ and so sometimes god sends instruction before he sends deliverance and then in verse 11 We see the grace of God because the Lord's angelic messenger came down and sat under the oak tree in, now be careful, not in Oprah, but in Ophrah, owned by Joash the Abizrite. He arrived while Joash's son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press so he could hide it from the Midianites. Now, the thing that makes this story tonight from Judges a little bit different and interesting is because up to this point in the book of Judges, it would just say God raised up a deliverer and that was it. And never really went into the background of how God raised up these judges and deliverers in Israel. But tonight, God wants us to see the specifics of how he raised up a deliverer in the book of Judges. How he interacted with this Gideon to call him to that point in his life where God could use him to make a positive impact on those around him. But I want you to notice something that we could have just quickly passed over, but it shows again the plight that Israel is in, the desperate plight that they are in. Notice, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. It's not where you thresh wheat. 
in that culture and in that part of the world, even to this day, the wine press is at the bottom of the hill or mountain. The threshing floor is always at the top of the mountain or the top of the hill. And the vineyards would always be at the top of hills, and they would always carry the large loads of grapes down the hill. They would never carry them up the hill. So wine presses were always at the bottom of mountains or hills. Threshing floors were always at the top of mountains or hills because as they would thresh, they needed to be at a place where the wind would be constantly blowing so that they could separate the wheat from the chaff. It was so bad in Israel at this point to hide from the Midianites that here's Gideon threshing wheat at the bottom of a mountain at a wine press. And you just got to get the humor of this in a sad sort of way. Here's a guy trying to thresh wheat and the wind's not blowing and you can just see it. He's trying to throw it up and it just keeps coming back, smacking him in the face. And, And probably because of all the wine and the stickiness of the grapes and stuff, he's got all this you know, stuff on him, and he's trying to, just because he doesn't want to be at the top of the mountain. He's in such fear of the Midianites. This is how sad it gets when we turn our back on the Lord. You see, when we're following the Lord, we have nothing to hide from. But when we get ourselves all twisted around spiritually, and we begin to walk a way that God doesn't want us to walk, we lose our boldness. We, we lose just being able to get out there and, and we start being overcome by fear. Now, I love this. Look at verse 12. As he begins to call this deliverer and raise up this judge, the Lord's messenger appeared and said to him, the Gideon, the Lord is with you, courageous warrior. Courageous warrior? This guy's threshing wheat. In the wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites. He's hiding. He's not courageous. And, and this verse, folks, is so cool for us because it reminds us of a principle we see throughout Scripture that should be an encouragement to all of us. And that is this. When God looks at you and me, when God looks at us, he sees our possibilities and our potential. He's basically saying to Gideon, I see in your future, you're going to be a courageous warrior. He wasn't at that point. But God knew if you just give me your life, here's what you can become. I want to remind all of us here tonight, God hasn't changed. He deals with his people the same today. And he's looking down at all of us tonight and he's saying, Jeff. Here's where you are, but this is where you can go. Here's what you can become with me if you just let me take you there. And that's true for every person in this room. Remember Peter? Jesus met Peter. He was Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, you will become Peter. After I'm done with you. You're not a rock right now, but you're going to be a rock one day because Jesus always sees the potential in our lives, always sees the possibilities. God does not want us to define our lives. God does not want to let us have others define our lives. God wants to define our lives alone. Let him take you where he wants to take you. Let him allow you to be what he wants you to be. Let him create in you where he wants you to go. 
Because God sees the possibilities and the potential. And notice the promise that can equip us to whatever God is asking us to do or calling us to do. In verse 12, he simply says, the Lord is with you. Now, I want to stop for a moment because that promise actually raised all sorts of problems for Gideon. And it showed, though, why it was necessary for God to send a prophet to the nation of Israel to instruct them because they were clueless. They they were at such a level of spiritual weakness that they couldn't see things properly. They couldn't see their plight from God's perspective. And that's why God had to send that prophet to instruct them. Because notice Gideon's response, verse 13. I love this. Gideon said to him, pardon me. But if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all his miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? They said, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. You see, don't miss this. The reason why God loves and cares about the people so much is because he sent Midian into their lives. It was out of his love, not abandoning them, not just turning his back on them and saying, you guys just want to live in sin for the rest of your lives and destroy your lives, fine. I'll just leave you alone. No, God loves and cares about us so much that he won't allow that to happen. So he pursues us, he goes after us, and yet they're interpreting it as, you've abandoned us because you've handed us over to the Midianites. And they're not seeing it from God's perspective. It reminds us again how blinding sin is, how deceptive sin is. When you and I walk away from God, the things that are so clear to God and so clear in his word and so clear to those who are walking with God are very unclear to us because sin is blinding. Sin is powerful. Sin is deceptive. That's why you can have Christians who get involved in something they shouldn't get involved with and they'll sit there and try to tell you 60 different ways, why it's right, how I can justify it, why it's excusable, all of that stuff. They'll do everything they can because to us it's so clearly wrong and to them there's a way around it somehow. That was Gideon. That was the Israelites. They're interpreting Midian coming and doing what they're doing as God's left us and abandoned us and it's actually a sign of how much he loves them. That he won't let them be. He won't let them stay comfortable in their sin. He wants to get them to the point where they will cry back out to him so that he can come and deliver them once again. Sometimes we need to be told the truth from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 verse 1. Look, the Lord's hand is not too weak to deliver you. His ear is not too deaf to hear you, but your sinful acts have alienated you from your God. So like many people in the Bible, the Lord himself, verse 14, turned to Gideon and said, you have the strength. Deliver Israel from the power of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And Gideon, like many, protested God's commission and call on his life. But Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Just look, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. And the Lord said to him, Ah, 
but I will be with you. Everything that Gideon needs is supplied in that brief statement where God says, but I will be with you. This seems throughout the Bible to be sort of God's trump card that he places in front of his hesitant, unwilling servants. And I don't really know of anybody in the Bible that wasn't hesitant or unwilling when God called them to something. You go all the way back to Abraham and you go to Moses and you go to most of the people that God called and says, I've got a plan for your life and I've got an assignment for you. Most of them, I don't see them stepping up to the plate and going, okay, God, send me in. No, most of them are like, like Gideon. Well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm young and, and I'm, I'm this and I'm insignificant and, and, uh, no, you know, I'm not very important and I don't have this and I don't have status. And, you know, we just throw all this stuff up at God and God comes back to Gideon with the same thing he comes back to us with. But I, Jeff, will be with you. Basically, God has nothing else or more to offer you or I. You and I can go through a lot with that promise. In fact, you and I can go through anything with that promise. It doesn't answer our questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or where or why. Only the who. But I will be with you. And that is enough. God goes on to say in verse 16, you will strike down the whole Midianite army. Throughout the Bible, the Bible reminds all of us as followers of God about his presence in our lives, that he's with us. I mean, the greatest psalm that everyone knows, Psalm 23 Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. For why? You are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. Even in the announcement when Jesus was going to come to earth, in Matthew chapter 1, I believe it's verse 23, the angel comes and says, You will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John in John's gospel says, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And Jesus, when he was leaving and before he ascended back to heaven, told his disciples in his very last words, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and I will be with you to the very end. In fact, in the book of Hebrews... God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you. As Jason said tonight, you know, some of us are going through some really hard times right now for many different reasons in our lives. There's one thing God wants us all to know tonight, to be reminded of tonight, and leave here tonight. And that is, he's still with you. He will be with you. And that's really all that you and I need to know. That's all that Gideon needed to know. I'm going to come back in just a moment to this other passage, but I want to drop down to verse 25. I want you to see a demand 
that the Lord places on Gideon that's very important tonight. Because it's one thing to meet God in the secrecy of the wine press. It's quite another thing to stand up for the Lord in public. And notice what the Lord asks of Gideon before he sends Gideon out to lead his own people and deliver them from the oppression of the Midianites that they've been under for seven years. That night, chapter 6, verse 25, the Lord said to him, Take the bull from your father's herd as well as a second bull, one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's Baal altar. That's significant. We're going to come back to that. Gideon's own father was an idolater. And cut down the nearby Asherah pole. Then build an altar for the Lord your God on top of this stronghold according to the proper pattern. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt sacrifice on the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did just as the Lord had told him. He was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in broad daylight, so he waited until nighttime. Courageous warrior? Not yet, but he's getting there. Because don't be too hard on Gideon by doing this at night. Yeah, he was afraid, but God never told him he couldn't do it at night. So it wasn't like he was disobeying. God never told him when to do it. God just said, do it. And whether he did it at night or he did it in broad daylight, the thing that God was concerned about was that he do it. Why such a demand? Because two altars cannot coexist side by side. You cannot have an altar to God and an altar to Baal. They are mutually exclusive. God was preparing to deliver them. But Israel must be properly prepared for such deliverance. God cannot entrust his good gifts to those who are not committed to him. There can be no double-mindedness. Not for Gideon, not for Israel, not for us. If God is to be their savior, their deliverer, then Baal must go. And folks, the same thing is true in our lives. We want God to work in our lives. We want God to deliver. We want to see the power of God pulsating through our lives and our ministries and our homes and churches and all of that. Then guess what? God says, then let Baal go, whatever Baal is. 1 John 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that's more important than God in our lives. And God says, let it go. In fact, I want to take you to two passages of Scripture to show you that this was a common problem in Israel and is a common problem today where people try to sit on the fence spiritually and not make a clear-cut commitment, devotion, and dedication to the Lord and then wonder why my life just seems to always be flopping back and forth and there seems to, seems to be this instability and I feel like this roller coaster Christian where I'm up one day and down the next. Why do I seem to struggle like that? It might be to the fact that there's still two altars in our lives at times. Go with me to the book of Joshua. Go back one book to the book of Joshua. To Joshua chapter 24. And look at verse 14 and 15 of Joshua 24. 
where Joshua says, Now obey the Lord and worship Him with integrity and loyalty. Put aside the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and worship the Lord. And if you have no desire to worship the Lord, choose today whom you will worship. Whether it be the gods whom your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but I and my family will worship the Lord. There's no confusion in the household of Joshua. We're committed to the Lord. No altar for Baal in Joshua's household. And there should be no altar to Baal in ours as well. Then go over to the book of 1 Kings. Go through the book of Judges and through 1 and 2 Samuel and you'll come to the book of 1 Kings where the great prophet of the nation of Israel, Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, is about ready to have a duel on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. So you can see that even years later after the events in Judges, guess what? Baal worship was still entrenched in the nation of Israel. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, here's what the prophet Elijah says. He approaches all the people and said, How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? If the Lord is the true God, then follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. And the people did not say a word. Reminds me of Pilate in the New Testament before Jesus at the trial. He tried to sit the fence. He tried to please the religious leaders of Israel. He tried to set Jesus free because he truly believed in his heart that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. But as a good politician, I've got to I got to make sure my constituents aren't going to kick me out of office. So, you know, he was trying to play that game where he was trying to please everybody. And sit on the fence. You and I or no one else in in the world can sit on the fence with Jesus. It's impossible. Jesus himself said, if you're not for me, you're against me. There is no such thing as fence sitting when it comes to God. And that's why back to the book of Judges chapter 6, God made this demand on Gideon. Before you can lead my people, you've got to practice this yourself and you've got to show them that the Baal altars or the altars to Baal must go. I love this. Man, there there had never been anything in the little town of Ophrah like this in all of its history. There was a furor. The town councilmen were sipping on their goat's milk around the town square and they were talking about oh my goodness somebody wrecked lord Baal's altar somebody hacked the lady asherah's pole into pieces and made it firewood and wait till we catch that rascal and it shows us just how far israel has slid these are these are people of these are the supposed to be the people of god who are now more concerned about a idol's worship center being destroyed than they are following the true God. Notice verse 28. When the men of the city got up the next morning, they saw the Baal altar pulled down, the nearby Asherah pole cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They said to one another, Who did this? 
They investigated the matter thoroughly and concluded that Gideon, son of Joash, had done it. Somehow word leaked out and the village fathers paid Joash, Gideon's father, a call, demanding he turn over his son for execution. Now I want you to notice something here. Remember, Joash, Gideon's father, had an altar to Baal. And yet what's going, what we're going to hear out of Joash's mouth in just a few moments is a reminder of what the commitment of one person to the true God can do in changing the hearts of other people because I believe that God used the commitment of Joash's own son Gideon in destroying the altar to Baal to prick the heart of Joash as well. Because notice what Joash says. Verse 30, the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son so we can execute him. He pulled down the Baal altar and cut down the nearby Asherah pole. But Joash said to all those who confronted him, Must you fight Baal's battles? Must you rescue him? Whoever takes up his cause will die by morning. If he really is a god, let him fight his own battles. After all, it was his altar that was pulled down. And that very day, Gideon's father named him Jerubbaal. Because he said, let Baal fight with him, for it was his altar that was pulled down. He basically was telling the town council of Ophrah, if Baal is God, he doesn't need any help from the town council to maintain his honor. He can perfect, he's perfectly able to zap my son himself. So he's pressing the issue here that God wants pressed in the nation of Israel. Either you guys continue to prop up Baal or you worship at the true altar of the one and only true God, Jehovah. And notice, next year, verse 33, same song. Midian and company flood into the valley of Jezreel. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east assembled. They crossed the Jordan River and camp in the Jezreel Valley. By the way, the Jezreel Valley in prophecy is called something else. It's called the Valley of Armageddon. But there's something different this year. There's a new twist. There's a man by the name of Gideon now on the scene. And notice in verse 34, the Bible tells us that the Lord's Spirit took control of Gideon. And he blew a trumpet. I want you to not pass by this because this is very practical for us. God wants his spirit to take control of us. And when God's Spirit takes control of our lives and takes over our lives, there's nothing that we can't do to glorify God. And we can go from a man of fear who's threshing wheat in a wine press to blowing a trumpet, rallying the troops of Israel against the oppressors. There can be that kind of transformation and change in our lives when we allow the Spirit of God to take control of our lives. And you are beginning to see the prophecy that God gave to Gideon way back when he met him at the wine press. Hi, Gideon, oh courageous warrior. Gideon was anything but a courageous warrior, but he's becoming one because he's allowing the Spirit of God to take control of his life. And the idols and the altars are coming down. 
And there is now becoming in Gideon's life and in the life of some other people in Israel this clear-cut devotion and commitment to the one and only true God in their life. Enough with the idols. It is time to once and for all dedicate ourselves completely to following the Lord. Now in the midst of moving forward, and we saw this in this other passage that I skipped over in, from verse 17 down through verse 21. And the reason I skipped over it is because a similar thing happens over here now in verse 36 through 40 at the end of the passage. That in the midst of moving forward, Gideon still needs some assurance that the promise is really God's promise. He's becoming a courageous warrior, but he's not quite there yet. Gideon is hesitant, but he's not faithless. So notice, Gideon says to God in verse 36, If you really intend to use me to deliver Israel, as you promised, then give me a sign as proof. Look, I'm putting a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground around it is dry, then I will be sure that you will use me to deliver Israel as you promised. And notice, the Lord did as he asked. And when he got up the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and enough dew dripped from it to fill a bowl. Then Gideon said to God in verse 39, please do not get angry at me when I ask for just one more sign. Please allow one more test with the fleece. This time make only the fleece dry while the ground around it is covered with dew, which is actually a greater miracle. And that night God did as he asked. Only the fleece was dry and the ground around it was covered with dew. Now, a couple things in wrapping up this tonight. I want us to be encouraged with this. Gideon was becoming a courageous warrior, but obviously just like us, we're not there yet. But I want you to notice, God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. He is patient with our weakness. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith. I tell folks all the time, God is more patient with us than we are with ourselves. If God was not the kind of God he was, he would have been done with Gideon. He said, Gideon, I'm not giving you a fleece. Get out there and do what I told you to do. I'm getting somebody else. He didn't do that. And I'm so glad I serve a God that doesn't do that because there have been many times in Jeff Royce's life where I didn't get it the first time and God said, okay, I'm going to continue to work with you here, Jeff. You're going to get it. I'm going to, because I'm patient with you, Jeff. I know I need to be. I'm patient with you. I'm glad I serve a patient God. Who just because we don't get it the first time doesn't mean God disqualifies us from serving him. He continues to work with us. Think about the prophet Jonah, who even went the other way and God could have said, fine, Jonah, you don't want to do what I want to do. I'll just get somebody else to do it. No, God went after Jonah. Because to God's heart, it was more important to get Jonah right than it was to find somebody else to do it. Because God doesn't leave us or forsake us. And even if God has to get a big fish to swallow us and take us to the bottom of the ocean in order for us to look up and try to get our lives back around again, that's what God will do. He loves us that much. Even one of us like Jonah. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God goes after us and rescues us and delivers us and turns us around again. But I do want to make this point. 
Very important for New Testament Christians. It was very popular in the Old Testament, especially with Jews, to use a fleece to determine God's will. Folks, we don't need fleece today. We need peace to determine God's will. You see, the reason why you never see a fleece used to determine God's will from the book of Romans through Revelation, which is really the New Testament, technically because the Gospels and the book of Acts are transitioning books to carry us from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and you never see a fleece used from Romans to Revelation, is because God doesn't want us to use fleeces to determine his will. He wants us to use the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Bible that he's given us to determine his will. And prayer. Using fleeces are actually a sign of weakness and not where God wants us to be. In fact, if you read the autobiography of one of the great Christians in history, John Wesley, who wrote many of the great hymns of the faith, John Wesley talked about how using fleeces in his life to determine God's will was something that he regretted at the end of his life. He said, I should have relied more on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I always tell people when many people come up to me and say, Pastor, how do I determine God's will in my life? I always take them to Colossians 3, verse 15, and here's what the verse says. Let the peace of God be in control in your heart. God doesn't want us to use fleeces to determine his will. He wants us to use peace to determine his will. God will give you and I, as his children, the supernatural gift of his peace within us to tell us that this is the road I want you to go down walk that way. Or make this decision, I'll give you my peace. In closing tonight, I want you to go back to chapter 6, verse 12. And I want you to see this once again. We've talked about the word of God that instructs us, the promise that equips us, and the demand that commits us. And I want to go back to that promise so that you and I will walk out of this place tonight with that promise in our heads and hopefully also in our hearts. Look at it again. Chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, courageous warrior. Folks, if there's something I could leave with you tonight, it would be this. The Lord is with you, courageous warriors. You can go through anything with that promise. God, again, may not tell you all the details, the where's, the why's, the how's. But he gives us the one essential in life that we need. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. This great God that we sing about, the maker of the universe, that God is going to go with you from this place tonight. He's going to go with you this week He's going to go with you through the weekend and come back out the other side. God will go with you. And I don't know what really, really hard things some of you are dealing with right now, but I do know this. My God and your God will go with you. So go from this place tonight, courageous warriors, knowing that God is with you. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for the word that instructs us. 
But sometimes, Lord, we don't get that instant deliverance in our life because, Lord, it's more important that we learn something from the situation we're in than being delivered from it. And God, I thank you for the demand that commits us that we need to see in our lives that if we truly want your power to be unleashed, we've got to tear down the altars to other gods. And we've got to get serious about our walk. And we've got to be committed and devoted followers of the Lord and not be double-minded trying to put one foot in the world and one foot with you. Lord, most of all, I want these folks tonight to leave here remembering the promise that equips all of us. And that's a promise that is timeless, that comes from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, down through the ages, and it is simply this, that the God of the universe who loves his people so much that he will not allow them to stay comfortable in their sin. And will go after them and will pursue them and is patient with them with their fragile faith. And will reassure them over and over again that the same God who says to us that no matter what you and I go through, I, the God of the universe, who loved you enough to die for you, that God will be with you this day. This week, this month, this year, this lifetime, to the very end, until we breathe our last breath, that God will be with us. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I love you. Thanks for being here. See you next week.